3: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com.
1: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb.
0: And I'm Joe McCormick. And welcome back for part two of the Vampire Clinic. We are going to be spending today exploring the second part of our uh, investigation into the link between medical conditions and the inspiration of vampire legends and vampire lore. If you haven't heard part one yet, you should go back and listen to that first. We lay a lot of groundwork there. We explore some interesting conditions and cases that may or may not apply to varying degrees to the vampire legend, but we wanted to continue our exploration today. So let's open the clinic and uh, allow the waiting room to fill up with potential vampires.
1: Yeah, all right, let's, let's get these uh, patients sorted out. Last time, uh, who did we talk about? We talked uh, about
0: uh, rabies. We talked about uh, syphilis. We talked about porphyria conditions, which we ultimately concluded were not a good inspiration for the vampire legend. and was actually kind of a case of the media running with something that was actually a pretty tenuous link. Mm-hmm. So,
1: so who do we have to kick off the episode with today? What what does what our next patient consist of?
0: Well, I think today we should start with a condition that has extremely clear links to folk vampire beliefs, something that's way less iffy than the conditions we've talked about before. And that is going to be tuberculosis. Ah. So this is going to be one that may not account for all cases or for the ultimate origins of vampire beliefs, but it quite clearly accounts for some of them. There's very good evidence that at least in some cases vampire beliefs were linked to tuberculosis and not just inspired by tuberculosis. Like they saw somebody who had tuberculosis and thought that's a vampire, but they were consciously associated with the disease, if that makes sense. So tuberculosis is, first of all, a bacterial infection that primarily infects the lungs and it's spread by way of aerosolized droplets that get dispersed through the air when an infected person coughs or sneezes. Uh, tuberculosis or TB is contagious, but it's known primarily for spreading among people who are sharing close living conditions. And though TB usually attacks the lungs, it can also infect other parts of the body, including everything from the kidneys to the spine to the brain. The bacterium that causes it is mycobacterium tuberculosis. And one of the uh, crucial things is that not everybody who has TB shows symptoms. There's what's known as latent TB in which you are infected with the bacteria. But symptoms haven't appeared yet. And we mentioned in the last episode how diseases that have latency periods, one of which can be some types of syphilis infection, um, get the, that can very easily uh, lend itself to supernatural interpretations, right? Because it becomes even less clear what the link between you – getting the disease and having the symptoms is. Right. It becomes this this hidden force. And so I want to look at a paper from the American Journal of Physical Anthropology that documents one specific case showing a link between tuberculosis and vampire beliefs. And this paper is by Paul S. Sledzik and Nicholas Bellatoni called Bioarchaeological and Biocultural Evidence for the New England Vampire Folk Belief uh, from 1994. So the modern pop culture vampire is, as we've been talking about, somewhat different from the 18th century Euro-American folk belief in vampires. Uh, One thing is that 18th century European peasants – often thought they could look at an unearthed corpse and tell whether or not it was a vampire. So a vampire would have maybe a bloated chest, long fingernails, and, and what looked like fresh blood draining away from the mouth. And if people exhumed a corpse and they they found a, quote, vampire in this state, it was assumed that this was because it it had, it had been leaving its grave to drain life from the living – now, vampires were associated with and blamed for all kinds of epidemic diseases. Uh, and if people in an area became sick and started wasting away and dying, it was because there was a vampire preying on them. And, you know, so when we're thinking about where to locate these, these sort of folk villager beliefs and vampires, we very often turn to like 18th and 19th century Eastern Europe, as we talked about in the last episode. That was a time and place where vampire beliefs were rampant, but – they were also pretty common in 19th century New England. You could go to parts of Connecticut, Massachusetts, Vermont, Rhode Island in the 1800s and find people with diseases who believed they were being preyed on by vampires. And a lot of those beliefs are deeply bound up with tuberculosis infection. Uh, so the authors write, quote, Following the death of a family member from consumption, and that's another word for tuberculosis, other family members began to show signs of tuberculosis infection, According to the New England folk belief, the wasting away of these family members was attributed to the recently deceased consumptive who returned from the dead as a vampire to drain the life from the surviving relatives. The apotropaic remedy – and that means – apotropaic magic it means like warding off evil, you know, to repel evil magic. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, the apotropaic remedy used to kill the vampire was to exhume the body of the supposed vampire and, if the body was undecomposed, remove and burn the blood-filled heart or the entire body.
1: So in, in this case, we're looking at an illness that is um, – it's basically providing a script for the victim more so than the, uh, the, the monster itself.
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean, it is an illness that creates conditions for people to think I am being preyed on by a vampire mm. or my family members are being preyed on by a vampire and we've got to do something. We've got to, you know, uh, uh, Jeff died last week. We're pretty sure it's him. We got to dig up his corpse and do something about it. Got to apply the apotropaic remedy, which would mean take out the heart, check and see if it's full of blood. If it is, it's obviously because he's a vampire and he's been drinking my blood, and you got to burn the heart.
1: Yeah, maybe just go ahead and burn the heart anyway because you've come this far.
0: Well, as we mentioned in the last episode, it seems that it was very common to dig up a corpse wondering if the corpse was a vampire and discover, yes, it was a vampire.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, you don't want to be the one to have to go back and say, look, eh, J- Jeff was OK. He was fine. Uh, yeah. After we uh, violated his grave and uh, removed his heart, we just we just stuffed it right back in there. Uh, I think it's it's basically basically we reinstalled it. Uh, his corpse is good to go. No harm, uh, no foul.
0: It's a factory refurb, yeah. refurb corpse. Uh so the paper this paper in particular it explores the impact of this set of beliefs i just described on the bioarchaeological record which means the study of skeletal remains through one fascinating example in particular so in November 1990 in the town of Griswold Connecticut which i <laughs> just have to report every time i typed when making notes for this episode i typed Grisworld oh Griswold i'm just unable to type Griswold and i don't know why uh, but in in Griswold, a privately owned sand and gravel business discovered an abandoned 18th to 19th century cemetery was eroding into their worksite. Right, so they're quarrying out sand and gravel, and then there's this old abandoned cemetery just sort of eroding into their workspace. That's
1: the that's kind of putting the blame on the cemetery. <laughs> you know, it's, it's like <laughs> yeah, like the, this this uh this sacred burial ground is really infringing on our business here. When it, I think it's more argu the other way around
0: well I don't know for sure but from the way it was written about I tend to assume that the people operating the quarry did not know that they were digging into a cemetery it was, yeah. yeah still the, the ghosts don't care <laughs> well so the original cemetery because it was eroding could not be salvaged where it was so the skeletons had to be removed and relocated elsewhere so all in all the forgotten graveyard contained the skeletal remains of 29 people there were six adult men eight adult women and 15 sub-adults. And the researchers were able to determine through land deeds that the area had been used as a family graveyard since the middle of the 18th century by the Walton family who had moved to Griswold from Rhode Island in 1690, hence it was known as the Walton Cemetery. So when they looked at the skeletons, one of the first things they saw is okay, the remains clearly indicate that the people buried here led lives of hard physical labor. These were hard-working people one skeleton in particular caught the attention of the archaeologists, the remains of a 50 to 55-year-old male in a coffin within a stone-lined grave. There were, uh, on the lid of the coffin, there was a pattern of tacks shoved into the lid that spelled JB 55. Presumably, this was the man's initials and the age at which he died. Now, inside the coffin, things got weirder. Instead of the bones lying in the normal arrangement you would see of a dead body, you know, like, you know, flat with like skull connecting to neck and everything, Mm -hmm. JB's skull and his femora, meaning his, you know, his thigh bones, uh, his femurs, they were on top of everything else in a skull and crossbones pattern. And then underneath, the ribs and the vertebrae were also scattered out of their natural positions. Beyond that, there were periostatic lesions on the left, second, third, and fourth ribs. And these would be lesions consistent with what could be caused by pulmonary tuberculosis or at the very least a condition that people in the 19th century probably would have confused with tuberculosis. Something uh, consisting of violent coughing fits, powerful enough to cause lesions on the membrane surrounding the rib bones – So we have evidence of death by pulmonary tuberculosis or some other pulmonary disease that would have looked like tuberculosis and the crazy rearrangement of the bones in the coffin. So what's going on? At the time of this paper, there were 12 known historical accounts of vampire belief-based activities in the 18th and 19th century New England. Uh, I've included a chart that we can look at. But in at least 11 of the 12 cases, the cause of death for the supposed vampire was consumption, meaning tuberculosis. So there's a clear link between this one particular disease and vampire attacks. Hmm. Now, the, the authors indicate that the New England vampire myth is strongly based in the physical realities of tuberculosis, both in how tuberculosis symptoms appear and in how the disease is transmitted. So, tuberculosis was known as consumption because it gave the the appearance of a person wasting away, essentially being slowly drained of life and vitality, while at the same time remaining conscious and retaining this desire to survive. And the authors write, quote, this." The dichotomy of desire and wasting away is reflected in the vampire folk belief. The vampire's desire for, quote, food forces it to feed off of living relatives who suffer a similar wasting away a lot in in vampire legends you often see a lot of these kind of uh in, intentional ironies and uh and juxtapositions you know uh the the contradictions of like having the, this otherworldly appetite while at the same time appearing gaunt or to to waste away in the body you know this does bring me back to bram stoker's
1: dracula because i, I feel like this is an an aspect of uh, the vampire Uh, legend that is well represented in that you know it's like someone is wasting away Mm -hmm. and what is the cause
0: clearly something is coming
1: uh into their room in the night and is the the supernatural cause of this consumption
0: right it's it's there in dracula when for example lucy has to keep receiving blood transfusions right they all these people keep giving her blood because it's like something is making her anemic and draining her life away and Mm -hmm. they don't see what it is But anyway, so in these historical accounts of New England vampires, what generally happens is you've got family members all living huddled together in close quarters. One member of the family gets infected with tuberculosis and dies. Then just before or soon after that family member dies, another becomes infected with tuberculosis, which is interpreted as the one who just died draining the second patient's life in order to survive. And of course, tuberculosis is, is well known for the ease with which it's transmitted between people living in close or crowded quarters, which would have been common for farmers in rural 19th century New England. Uh, the authors note also that there there would be seasonal lulls in nutrition and constant unsanitary conditions, which would of course just make things worse. Yeah, I can only imagine. And the authors write, quote, Although there is no evidence of tuberculosis in the remaining Walton Cemetery skeletons, an 1801 narrative of Griswold history indicates that during the 25 years preceding the account, consumptions had proved to be mortal to a number. So, okay, let's say half your family, they've got consumption. And you think it's because the one of you who just died is a vampire – What do you do to stop it? Well, you have to go out and kill the vampire. So in 18th and 19th century New England, the contemporaneous accounts indicate that you would do this as follows. First, you've got to dig up the body – Then you check and see, is there blood in the heart? And if there's blood in the heart, you've got to burn the heart. Many accounts of the time seem to indicate that when people dug up bodies for this reason, they just generally found the body undecomposed with blood in the heart. So they'd find what they were looking for. And the reason dead bodies often had these appearances is normal, and it's due to postmortem decomposition. There's a book called Vampire's Burial and Death, Folklore and Reality by an author named Barber that gets cited a lot on this account about how People would mistake naturally uh, the natural effects of postmortem decomposition for stuff that indicated a, a dead body was still alive and feeding, like the you know the bloating and the blood running from the mouth mm-hmm. and all that, or that prominent uh, genitalia. <laughs> oh yeah, from the from the rabies case, mm-hmm. right? Okay, so what about JB? Back to JB, who had his his bones arranged in the skull and crossbones. Well, the evidence indicates that when his family members dug him up he was already decomposed. There was not any soft tissue left on his bones. So what do you do? You think JB is the vampire that's draining your family members of life. You dig him up. There's no soft tissue. There's no heart to burn. So the authors have a hypothesis. Apparently, the alternative to burning the heart, if there's no heart left, is to rearrange the bones and to place the skull in an apotropaic symbol, the skull and crossbones. Oh. And the authors write, quote, in support of this hypothesis, we note that decapitation was a common European method of dispatching a dead vampire and that the Celts and the Neolithic Egyptians were known to separate the head from the body, supposedly to prevent the dead from doing harm. And on top of that, the authors provide some documentary evidence in the form of newspaper articles showing that vampire beliefs were to be found in the vicinity of Griswold, Connecticut in the middle of the 19th century. There is a story from an 1854 issue of the Norwich Courier about an incident in nearby Jewett City in which consumption had killed a man named Horace Ray and three of his sons. And then several of their dead bodies were exhumed and burned in order to stop them from feeding on other members of the living family. So this is a somewhat different kind of case than the things we looked at in the last episode. Uh, th- this is a case where sort of where the local epidemiology of tuberculosis included beliefs about vampirism. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, this one really surprised me. I, I was not I was not expecting it. Partially, I think, because when when I went into it, I, I really was more focused. Uh, I was thinking about well, what are the diseases that line up with the monster? I wasn't thinking about the uh, the, the, the traumatic scenario of, of people wasting away. Uh, in a family and then looking for what is the supernatural cause of this? What is the the source of the curse?
0: Well, it seems to be like it's extending the symptoms of the disease to beyond a death, right? Mm -hmm. So it combines this idea that people who had consumption were wasting away. They needed some kind of nourishment or they needed some kind of vitality to come back to them. And they strongly wanted to survive. They remained lucid and they like had their will to live. And it's almost like saying, okay, even after they die and they're buried, those symptoms continue like they're still wasting away. They still need life and they still must return to get it somehow.
1: I mean, the nefarious thing about this is that it is a predictive legend. It is predicting how the how the the illness will likely spread within a given family and what will happen to those individuals. Uh, It just has this uh, supernatural explanation for what's occurring. And a remedy that is ultimately going to be rather indifferent to the uh, the actual spread of the disease. I think that, that would be the, the ultimate um, horror, wouldn't it? That you, you dig up the grave, you uh, violate the corpse of a family member, and then it doesn't stop the illness. Uh, which I guess probably forces one to think well we must we must have got the wrong grave we didn 't get the vampire there 's a second vampire right, maybe and maybe a the madness one. continues, yeah, um as opposed to just realizing, oh, this line of thinking is uh is incorrect,
0: you know one thing I often think about with um stuff like this that 's not clearly self limiting like the disease is going to do what it 's going to do either way, mm-hmm. it 's not like a Uh, an easily placebo effect controlled condition where you can – you know, you're experiencing pain and maybe doing some kind of magic spell or apotropaic remedy might make you think you feel better, right? Mm -hmm. You you still have a TB infection and thinking that you've fixed it with apotropaic magic is not going to make the bacteria – Bacterial infection go away, right? Right. Um, so you have to wonder, like, how did people react to the clear failure of their interventions?
1: Well, yeah, I mean, part of it, I think, probably goes back to our episode on curses, is that mm-hmm. yeah, there would be this period where you feel a little better, uh, perhaps due to the placebo effect, the placebo effect of of, uh, of graveyard desecration, uh, you know, <laughs> but the placebo effect nonetheless. Uh, so I could they could I could see where that might may, that may be a factor. It's like, well, we killed the vampire. And she got a little better, but it was really too late.
0: Oh, you know? <laughs> but it, yeah. It had already gotten the fangs in. And, yeah. I mean, fortunately, one thing about tuberculosis is also t- today there are real treatments for tuberculosis. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you can get courses of antibiotics. I, I, don't, I don't think it's the easiest thing to treat. I think I've read that you have to get like long courses of antibiotics to treat tuberculosis today. But there do exist treatments.
1: So for this one, I think I, are, uh, I, I keep coming back to Dracula. Mm-hmm. As being a good, um, uh, a good cinematic uh, literary vampire to consider uh, as as the, the the TB vampire,
0: the way it's causing say Lucy to slowly waste away over days, and they yeah. don't know how to stop it.
1: Yeah, and then uh, I mean, and that was a very influential work. So I think you see shades of that in other vampire fiction. Salem's Lot comes to mind. You know, like, that's definitely one that plays with the idea of the vampire essentially slipping in in the night and doing its, uh, its, uh, its, its, uh, its work on you. All right, on that note, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, uh, we will diagnose some more blood drinkers. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples.
0: Well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Okay,
2: picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road, the steeper the better or do something a little more epic and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Today's episode is brought to
0: you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. All right, we're back. The vampire clinic is open, and we're going to see the next patient apparently presenting with vampirism. Now, the last case we looked at, it turned out what was really inspiring this belief in vampirism was tuberculosis. And I would say in that last case, we've been offering verdicts on how clear we think the link is between certain diseases and vampire lore. Clearly, there is some link with tuberculosis. That's pretty much undisputable. Mm -hmm. This next one I think is more disputable, but it's also very historically interesting. So I want to look at a paper by uh, Jeffrey S. Hampel and William S. Hampel. I assume they're probably related uh, – called "Pellagra and the Origin of a Myth, Evidence from European Literature and Folklore from the Journal of the Royal Society of Medicine from 1997. So the authors write that in 18th and 19th century Europe, villagers often mixed medicine and magic with many diseases assumed to have supernatural causes. And when a disease lingered in a village, villagers often assumed that the first person to come down with the disease was a vampire. And the vampire legend can be seen as an early attempt to try to understand contagion. I think that's been coming through in a lot of what we've talked about already. It's almost like vampirism is a folk logic way of trying to understand the mechanics of contagion and infection. And one of the things actually the authors of this paper point out is kind of interesting. uh, The term Nosferatu, you know where that comes from, Robert?
1: Uh no, not a fan.
0: Well, so it was popularized by Bram Stoker in the novel Dracula. It most probably comes from a Romanian word used for like Satan or devil, uh, but, but like
1: maybe kind of a generic term for some sort of embodied evil. Like the, uh, that's yeah. a Nosferatu, or the Nosferatu will come in.
0: I think it. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think it means something like the you know the the unwanted one or something like that. Mm-hmm. But it's a term that the Romanian speaking people would have used for. The devil or for Satan. But the authors of the paper also note a possible, just possible connection to the Greek word nosophoros, meaning disease carrier. Count Nosophorus. I want to see that show up somewhere. Yeah, it could be a false cognate but I but I like the idea of that link that, and it certainly makes sense given all the historical accounts we've been talking about. And, that you know, they mention that other diseases have been proposed as the possible link to, as the possible inspiration or genesis of the vampire legend, rabies, tuberculosis, erythropoietic porphyria, which in the last episode we talked about how we think is not a good explanation actually. Uh, but the authors here believe that that none of the proposed diseases is adequate to explain widespread belief in vampires in Europe during this period. And they propose an alternative that's pretty interesting, a vitamin deficiency. Wow! So they propose pellagro, which is, quote, a dietary deficiency of niacin, which is also known as vitamin B3. And uh, and a deficiency of tryptophan, which is something that the body converts into niacin, kind of the same way the body converts beta-carotene into vitamin A. This
1: is interesting. I go to health food stores uh, with, with a fair amount of frequency. I never see a vampire there. So
0: um, <laughs> I'm already liking this theory a lot. Right. Vitamin supplements keep the vampires away. Yeah. A, what is it? A vitamin – a B3 a day keeps the Van Helsing away? Yeah, a perfect <laughs> ring of B3 uh,
1: d- uh, tablets or uh, or even lozenges – or, um, we'll uh, we'll surround. If you surround your bed with that, it'll keep uh, the Nosferatu's from creeping in.
0: So, how could a vitamin deficiency explain vampirism? Well. Pellagra was first recognized in 1735 and it affected lots of people throughout Europe and the United States in the 18th and 19th centuries. And we've been talking in the past couple episodes about how common vampire beliefs seem to be in especially like 18th and 19th century Eastern Europe. So why then? Why there? And the authors write about how before this, many bulk food crops in Europe would have been rye or wheat But in the 18th century, European farmers began substituting corn or corn, you know, maize, the crop from America, because it actually yielded more food calories per acre of cropland. So you might think, okay, yeah, that's easy. You got the same amount of farmland, but you get more food out of it. It's a no-brainer, right? Mm -hmm. So corn became a staple crop, spreading slowly from the Iberian Peninsula to the east and eventually becoming common in Eastern Europe. But there's a downside to switching over from wheat and rye to cornmeal-based – to a cornmeal-based diet. Cornmeal contains niacin and tryptophan in a chemically bound state with low bioavailability, meaning that though your body can get lots of usable calories of energy out of cornmeal, it can't get much niacin or tryptophan to turn into niacin. So – poor people throughout Europe who had switched over to a cornmeal-based diet began to suffer from a deficiency of niacin or vitamin B3, a a deficiency known as pellagra.
1: Ah, okay. I see where this is heading then. Uh, So so, uh, so I guess now we have to really get into the symptoms of
0: pellagra. Right. So doctors in Spain and Italy were quicker to recognize the the disease and its cause. And in Eastern Europe, apparently – Poverty and the lack of medical expertise sort of kept the disease from being diagnosed very much until well into the 1800s. So the symptoms you mentioned. Pellagra is characterized by what's known as the four Ds. You've got dermatitis, diarrhea, dementia, and death. Mm, those are some
1: dastardly Ds. I uh, want no part of any of
0: those. Yeah, death is especially dastardly, yeah. as we all know. Uh, So pellagra causes, first of all, dermatitis, which is inflammation of the skin. One easy thing to remember is that pretty much any time you see itis in a word, it means something about inflammation or swelling. Uh, Dermatitis, inflammation of the skin. Now, there are many types of dermatitis. Any rash is a form of dermatitis. But the severe dermatitis brought on by pellagra can include rashes on the face, rashes on the mouth, the hands and feet, or around the neck in a formation that's known as a chasal collar or chasal necklace. If you look it up, it's very creepy looking. It looks like a – it's this rash around the base of the neck. It's super – Does it look like something has been like gnawing at your neck kind of a thing? Well, yeah, or it looks like somebody's put a noose around your neck or something. Mm, Interesting. Now, these rashes can be discolored with reference to the rest of the skin. They can be red and flaky. They can crust over, be scaly or thick, dry and cracked. And there can also be sores on the mouth, tongue, gums and lips. And what's more, the authors point out that these areas of the skin with dermatitis can be hypersensitive to light. Quote, sun-exposed areas at first become red and thick with hyperkeratosis and scaling. This is followed by inflammation and edema, which eventually leads to depigmented, shiny skin, alternating with rough brown, scaly areas. With repeated episodes of erythema, a pelagrin's skin becomes paper-thin and assumes a parchment-like. Texture,
1: and this is this is an aspect of the vampire that uh, I don't think we've discussed yet. The fact that the vampire almost always has this this pale, deathly pallor.
0: Yeah, the vampire is often portrayed as having a a depigmented look, Mm -hmm. often depicted as kind of an alternating like pale and then rosy red like in the lips or the mouth. Um, And the obvious comparison is that vampires display sensitivity to sunlight, of course, and they, they must come to, in the words of Count Dracula, love the shade and shadow. And the authors actually cite the novel Dracula as a point of comparison. They, I, I don't know if this is the best way to do it, but they reason that citing comparison to Dracula is reasonable because Stoker did lots of research collecting vampire folklore from Eastern Europe. So they say his novel serves as a pretty good record of folk vampire beliefs sort of wrapped up into one character. I don't know how legitimate that is maybe. I mean, I think he did do research, right? Right,
1: yeah. I mean, I guess this is legitimate as wondering if he had syphilis or not. Yeah. Though, I mean, given the time period, I, I... – I, a lot of people had syphilis. Right.
0: Uh, so they say, you know, Count Dracula is also described as a man of, quote, extraordinary power with not, quote, a speck of color about him and yet with a, quote, bloated face. Stoker also says that the vampire has remarkable ruddiness of the lips. So, pale face, pale bloated face, and then remarkably red lips. Uh, And he describes the three vampire brides in Dracula's castle with the words, the ruddy color, the voluptuous lips. And this could be sort of a third-hand reflection of the way people with pellagra would have redness and swelling of the lips, though often leading to a, a cracking that you probably would not describe as voluptuous, I would guess.
1: You know, this reminds me uh, specifically, though, of some of the depictions I've seen of ghouls, Hmm. uh, which have certain vampiric qualities. And we did a whole episode on ghouls uh, a while back uh, that's running as a vault episode this month. But uh, in particular, there was a Tales from the Crypt episode called Morning Mess uh mourning is in like mourning for the dead. Mm-hmm. Uh that in it's a fabulous episode. My favorite Tales from the Crypt episode. Really? Uh and but it has some wonderful ghouls in it. And the ghouls are depicted, you know, as this kind of like grayish, pale creatures, hairless, um, kind of elven ears. And uh they have these big grotesque lips though that are cracked uh in the manner that you're describing.
0: Oh, I just looked it up. Yes, exactly. They're red. they're all cracked, mm-hmm. yeah, parched. Almost showing clear evidence of uh, hyperkeratosis. Yeah, uh, that's that's interesting. And so another thing that the authors point out here is that. Vampires in folklore are often characterized as having, quote, a foul mouth or bad breath. And the authors note that this may be the origin of the use of garlic as a remedy for vampirism through homeopathic logic, right? You like cures like. So the villagers wanted to fight fire with fire. You got foul mouth, give them garlic to cure it.
1: I'm thinking a lot of people had foul mouth, though, at this time. <laughs> yes. I'm just going to go out on a limb.
0: <laughs> that is a very good point. Now, I'm sure you could have fouler than average mouth, but yeah. Yes. Just eating a eating a lot of a lot of cornmeal, never brushing your teeth. Yeah. So we've described the lips, but but how about the tongue of the vampire, Joe? Uh, oh, this is a good you know, this gets referenced sometimes. You would dig up a corpse and say, oh, the face is swollen, There's some, you know, the tongue is uh, swollen or something. And apparently a person with pellagra will often have an alarming-looking tongue with glossitis, swelling of the tongue, and extreme redness, sort of visually associating the mouth with blood while the skin might be pale, cracked, and parchment-like. So try to picture it. You've got shiny, depigmented, parchment-like skin and then like a a red, blistery mouth with a swollen red tongue. You look at that and you think, "Uh, that could be a vampire. Yeah. Yeah. Then again, I wonder how much of that is just playing on like the vampires we've come to know through 20th century movies and stuff. I think about the depiction of once Lucy becomes a vampire in Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula, you know, the the pale parchment-like shiny depigmented skin and the hugely red mouth. I don't know if that's always there in the the more traditional vampire folklore. I know, in fact, one thing we've read is that sometimes – not always, but sometimes – People believed vampires to look healthy and look, you know, the the opposite of this.
1: Well, we get into the sw- swelling of the lips, right? It gets confusing because, yeah. like, a, like, like, like. Thick, certainly red lips are generally considered alluring. Uh, mm-hmm. It's one of the things about like the cracked lips. Is, like, that's where you get into the idea that, it, that it's – there's like almost category confusion there, right? Yeah. Like the lips are big and red, but they are also grotesque. I do not know if I should be repelled or attracted to the vampire.
0: Well, and you know some uh, 18th century Eastern European peasants probably didn't like category confusion. Right. Now another so that's the first D dermatitis. Another uh, symptom is diarrhea. Pellagra yes. causes uh, dysfunction of the gut and the, the GI tract.
1: And I know everybody f- from when we when you first mentioned the four Ds, they've they've been waiting for you to hit this and explain the link between diarrhea. And vampires.
0: Well, this might have the least link to the vampire, but we'll see. So the authors say, uh, vampire legends, of course, don't often mention diarrhea, uh, you know. But they say, well, you probably wouldn't have expected the records of the time to make a lot of, of about diarrhea. But there are some associated ideas. A common part of the vampire legend is the idea that the vampire needs only blood and will refuse normal food. And there are sections in Dracula that talk about this. Like the Count keeps apologizing to Jonathan Harker for not dining with him. You know, I have dined already and I do not sup. Also later, when Mina Harker is turning into a vampire, she describes how she found herself unable to eat food. She says, I could not eat. To even try to do so was repulsive to me.
1: It's convincing, I, I but I would be more convinced if there were parts in uh, Dracula where the, the the count says, excuse me, I must go to the restroom again. And this occurs <laughs> like every like 10 minutes. Yeah. And he's constantly drinking water, orange juice.
0: You know, I didn't think to do this, but I, I should have just searched the medical literature for the phrase "diarrhea vampire," and I, I, I didn't try it. You know, it, maybe something will come up.
1: There's our there's our our, uh, our metal band name for the uh, for the episode though, "Vampire Diarrhea." I think that would be a good
0: a good, a good name. Wait, what's better, "Diarrhea Vampire" or "Vampire Diarrhea"? Mm, "Diarrhea Vampire" probably. Almost ready to move on. So the authors write that the inability or unwillingness to eat is a common feature of pellagra because of discomfort caused by the mucous membrane lesions in the esophagus, the stomach, the colon. So you get diarrhea, lack of appetite. And you might wonder, like, why would pellagra affect uh, dermatitis and diarrhea? Well, niacin deficiency is most apparent where new cells are manufactured most frequently, and this includes the skin and the GI tract. Okay, you ready for the next D?
1: Yeah, we're ready for D number three, I think, D3. This is dementia?
0: Yes. So people suffering from pellagra will eventually develop neurological symptoms, appearing as some form of dementia. The lack of niacin causes a metabolic deficiency that causes neurons in the brain to degenerate, manifesting as things like insomnia, anxiety, aggression, and depression. And these symptoms, the authors note, are of the manic depressive type. So folklore often claims that the vampire does not sleep at night and becomes morose or irritable. And the authors compare this set of symptoms to the character of Renfield in the novel Dracula. Though Renfield is not a vampire himself, he wants to become one. He's emulating the vampire. Mm -hmm. And he still exhibits the characteristics associated in the folklore with burgeoning vampirism. And the character of Dr. Seward, uh, Renfield's... A uh, doctor in the book describes Renfield as follows, quote, sanguine temperament, morbidly excitable, periods of gloom, a possibly dangerous man. A great character to be sure. Yes. The authors point out that pellagra can also sometimes be associated with pica. And pica, of course, is a disorder in which you have a pathological appetite, often, mm. you know, for substances that are not foods like soil paper, hair, ice, clay, stuff like that. Yeah,
1: dirt and clay in particular are often often explored in this area.
0: Yeah, and the authors speculate that this could be a part of the body's desperate attempt to find something to eat with niacin in it, right? People with pellagra uh, have been reported to crave substances like vinegar and spices. And the authors draw the connection with Renfield's obsessive appetite for living things like spiders, birds, and mice. Though, I don't know, I, I feel like that one might be kind of of a stretch because from the vampire point of view, wouldn't spiders, birds, and mice contain some actual nutrition? Like yeah. it's sort of a form of meat. Yeah, this one feels
1: like more of a stretch. Though I, I love the idea of. I mean, we know that there's often this uh, this this ne- necessity for the vampire to have access to its grave dirt
0: no. uh, from
1: its native soil. I mean, that's in Dracula uh, itself. Yeah, um, I don't think it's. I've never heard a story where it's imp- where it's implied that the vampire eats the dirt. But now I kind of want that. I want a a nice grave dirt-eating vampire.
0: Well, there's also the idea that consecrated soil can be dangerous to the vampire. Is Mm. it because the vampire is tempted to ingest it? Mm, Yeah, it could be accidental uh, sort of holy poisoning there. Yeah. Okay, so the the fourth D – time for death. Okay. So as opposed to the modern vampire where we all know the modern movie vampire, I think of like when I try to think of the best modern movie vampire example, maybe it's Chris Sarandon in Fright Night, right? That's just like that's modern movie vampire to the max. Yeah. Fright Night. Uh, so in that ca- in that case like a single bite or encounter is enough to kill a person and turn them into a vampire, right? But in the vampire of 18th and 19th century Eastern European folklore, It's generally a creature that slowly drains life essence and health over a long period of time, repeatedly attacking the same victims again and again in the night and leaving evidence in the form of a person's wasting illness becoming worse and worse over time. Robert, would you agree with that characterization?
1: Yeah, yeah. The idea that uh, someone is drained too much, uh, too often, they can become the thing that drained them. Yeah,
0: or at least just be killed. Right. Uh, But it's not just like one random attack usually does it in this lore. Uh, So the vampire was also never caught in the attack. Instead, it was like, oof, well, you know, Victor looks even worse than he did yesterday. Must have been that vampire again.
1: Right, and it helps classify the the vampire more as a, a parasitic entity as opposed to a predatory.
0: Uh, entity. I think that's a good point, yeah. So as we discussed with other diseases, including things like tuberculosis, vampire folklore often takes what we would interpret as a bunch of people all getting the same disease and dying over time as the first person who got this disease and died from it was a vampire and they're returning from the grave for revenge against their friends and family members by slowly draining their life essence. Hmm. Since the impoverished families of Eastern Europe generally would have all had the same diet, if one person got pellagra, you would expect other members of the family to develop it as well. And how long it takes pellagra to kill you is not fixed. If untreated, it can take four to five years to kill somebody. But it can also kill suddenly in earlier stages when symptoms are less pronounced. And they also note that a person with advanced pellagra who appears anemic from gastrointestinal bleeding could have been interpreted as the living dead.
1: Well, all in all, I think this makes for an interesting argument.
0: They offer a few more uh, shorter lines of evidence, and I think uh, let's look at those after we take a break.
2: Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Today's episode is brought to you by
0: Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. All right, we're back. Okay, other bits of evidence that the authors of this paper we've been talking about uh, have for pellagra being the cause of vampirism. One is historical timing. So they point out that the word vampire, the verd vampire, uh, first entered English in 1734, quote, a year before pellagra was noted by a royal physician as a, quote, disgusting indigenous disease among Spanish peasants. Hmm. Nothing like a, like a condescending royal physician. yeah. Um, but yeah, so this is uh, not really a piece of evidence, but the authors just note that even in the novel Dracula, when Jonathan Harker is on his way to Count Dracula's castle, he stops somewhere and eats a local breakfast, which is a porridge of maize flour. Hmm. So if people were eating cornmeal products as their main staple, they may very well have been susceptible to pellagra. A couple of other interesting things that might be kind of a stretch. One is the, the link between seeds. So you know that old legend that you can protect yourself against a vampire by scattering seeds on the ground?
1: Oh, this is an idea that they have to count them all. And the, so kind of similar in the idea that if you have like a complex knot, they have to like analyze the, the string.
0: Right, yeah. So you can you can distract a vampire by giving them something to occupy their attention. You throw the throw rice or, or seeds on the ground and they'll be forced to count them all.
1: Right. So like the modern – you could leave a magic eye book out and they would <laughs> – Or <laughs> leave out some sudoku and they would have to uh, uh, go through the entire booklet and then the, the sunlight would uh,
0: destroy them. It's the Sunday Times. Here, do the crossword puzzle. <laughs> so yeah, the, the authors note that millet seeds were commonly cited for this usage and – they say, you know, that's ironic because millet actually has an excess of leucine, which is an amino acid that blocks the conversion of tryptophan into niacin, meaning millet could make a case of pellagra even worse. I think that's an interesting coincidence, but that doesn't really strike me as evidence.
1: Still, it's basically the joke I made earlier about uh, taking B3 tablets and spreading uh-huh. them all over your, your bedroom. Like right. that's kind of what they're arguing here is that you've done that with
0: the seeds. Well, but it'd be the exact opposite of that actually. Mm-hmm. It'd be like it'd be like spreading around B3 blockers. <laughs> um, another thing they bring up is timing during the year. So pellagra is often referred to as a springtime disease. Why is that? Well, In the springtime, the new crops haven't come in yet. So dried cornmeal is going to be a big part of the diet. You don't have fresh produce to eat yet. Mm. So pair this with the idea that St. George's Day, which is in late April or early May, is traditionally believed to be the day that vampires would come together to plan their attacks for the coming year. And in Dracula, Jonathan Harker is told upon his arrival in Transylvania, quote, It is the eve of St. George's Day. Do you not know that tonight when the clock strikes midnight, all the evil things in the world will have full sway? Oh, wow. This reminds me a lot of the werewolf game, right?
1: It's like now all the villagers go to sleep. Uh Uh-huh. And the vampires wake up and plot against the villagers.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. Who do you want to kill tonight? Yes. Uh, So finally, they cite disinterment and this connection seems likely coincidental to me but also interesting, kind of like the millet thing. So when a vampire was suspected, villagers would often dig up a recently buried body to inspect it for signs of vampirism. We've been talking about that. But one sign apparently of the corpse being a vampire was that the face, of course, was red and marked with fresh blood. But another sign (laughs) was a ring of cornmeal around the vampire's mouth. Oh, I don't know. It seems like kind of a stretch, but that's also interesting.
1: Now, this is a great example of something that's just too stupid to really make its way into any like cinematic or literary treatment of the vampire. Right. The cornmeal around the mouth.
0: Well, wouldn't that have been great if you put that into Coppola's Dracula? So Gary Oldman's walking around in his dandy costume, but he's got cornmeal all over his mouth. <laughs>
1: he's constantly <laughs> eating cornflakes. He's, and, a, he's yeah.
0: a vitamin deficiency vampire oh my in modern God. day London. I've got another piece of evidence for them. Okay.
1: Who is the bane of the, uh, of the vampires in Dracula?
0: Dr. Van Helsing? And
1: who played him so well in uh, France? Ford Coppola's version.
0: Anthony Hopkins. And
1: what uh, famous nutritionist uh, figure did Anthony Hopkins also play? I don't know Kellogg. He did. Yes, I didn't know that. Yeah, the the Road to Wellville. Oh, okay, I didn't know. Did uh, did Kellogg give people vitamin B three? I'm not certain on that, but he gave a lot of people a lot of things. And uh, Anthony Hopkins' uh, performance uh, in that movie is so wonderful and so absurd. I want to see. I want to see his Kellogg uh, fight the vampires. I think that would have been oh. amazing.
0: Man, yeah. Kellogg versus Dracula. Somebody make that movie right now. <laughs> that would be amazing. Somebody should make a series of uh, like the greatest quacks in the history of medicine versus vampires. Mm. I want to see Dracula versus uh, – who is that guy, that, that U.S. doctor who did like the goat gonad implants on people? Oh,
1: goodness. I feel like we've discussed him on the show before, but uh, his name is not coming to mind.
0: Brinkley, John Brinkley. That uh, guy, Yeah. Yeah,
1: or the, uh, the the character who uh, thought that you could treat mental ailments by removing teeth. Uh, that one would be another one to throw up against the vampires. Oh, I don't remember who that was. Yeah, I, his name isn't, uh, isn't coming to me either. But he's a character that showed up on the television series The Nick as well, oh, yeah. played by uh, John Hodgman, actually. Oh, really? Yeah. Huh. John Hodgman's uh, finest performance in my opinion. <laughs>
0: Okay so we got to wrap up pellagra so in conclusion the author's note you know there there are actually some other vitamin deficiencies that could cause similar symptoms like the ones they mention uh, glossitis the spelling of the tongue anemia anorexia pica but pellagra is the one that would have been historically most likely to do so because of the historical timing and the spread of corn you know cornmeal as a food staple throughout europe So coming down to the end here, what what do we think our verdict is? I think this is – this one seems like a mixed bag to me. Some of the evidence, like the historical timing, seems very good. In other stuff, it really seems like they're reaching.
1: Mm -hmm. At the most, I feel like any of these illnesses is going to match up with, you know, just aspects of the vampire myth. Would have helped contribute to uh, the way the myth took shape. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I feel like it's, it's ultimately kind of a fool's errand to try and just boil it all down to one particular ailment. Now, there are a number of different uh, illnesses that we didn't have time to discuss here, um, particularly in cases where the connection is maybe less robust. Uh, for instance, uh, uh, the work of uh, uh, Juan Gomez Alonzo, M.D., that I referenced uh, in the first episode, uh, he, in passing, he mentioned that some connections have been made between the vampire myth and schizophrenia. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I feel like... You know, based on what we've we, we've read and discussed regarding schizophrenia in the past, I think there there is a lot of room for supernatural ideas to emerge from e- either directly from individuals who are struggling with schizophrenia or people mm-hmm. who are observing or or trying to help individuals who are dealing with schizophrenia. Uh, but
0: oh, oh yeah, I mean, it's always you always have to wonder if certain supernatural beliefs have some kind of origin in conditions that cause hallucination.
1: Right. And then uh, I didn't see any particular um, uh, studies that looked at this, but I I can't help but think, of course, of our old... uh, our old friend sleep paralysis as well. Oh yeah, sleep paralysis is often mentioned uh, in episodes or experiences that involve demons or ghosts or or uh, alien visitations. But certainly, one of the cores in the vampire myth, right, is something came to you in your bed while you were asleep and and preyed upon you, fed upon your blood. Uh, so I think the idea of you know of waking in this this weird hallucinogenic state, being unable to move, I think that would lend itself well to uh, to vampire interpretations, or at the very least, as any of these things are ultimately doing, like provide fuel for the pre-existing uh, vampire myth flame.
0: Yeah, and I think that's a lot of what we need to emphasize here is that we don't want to create the impression we think that there is any one single condition that created the vampire legend. I mean, it's clearly something that is a variegated myth in its own right. You know, there are a lot of different versions of it, mm-hmm. especially since, you know, we've been focusing on especially like the 18th, 19th century Eastern European version of the vampire lore, which itself is Fairly varied, but contributed to what became, you know, the the Dracula right. vampire. But there are all kinds of vampires around the world that have their own local inspirations.
1: Oh yeah, I mean the uh, so many of the uh, like the Mesoamerican and South American versions are just so grotesquely fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, Uh, I think I've discussed some of those on the show before.
0: One more thing I just remembered that we hadn't mentioned uh, but we took a quick look at was the idea of linking vampire lore and specifically the story of Dracula to the idea of hereditary somnambulism, you know, the the sleepwalking. Yeah, yeah. Which uh, you can certainly see before people understood that that might have just sort of mundane neurological causes uh, people could look at that kind of behavior and say, oh, something, something very creepy is going on now. My, You know, my child is sleepwalking out of the house in the night. He or she is being lured out by some kind of predator, some kind of supernatural parasite inviting them out to be drained.
1: All right, well, there you have it. We're going to go ahead and close up the clinic for today, but who knows? Maybe we'll be back uh, someday to discuss uh, and evaluate uh, some additional cases of uh, alleged vampirism.
0: Well, I'm absolutely positive we have not exhausted the possible links between medical conditions and and vampire lore. So there's no way there's not more to talk about.
1: There will always be more patients. All right. Uh, if you want to check out more episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, including the episode that preceded this one, uh, head on over to StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's where you'll find all the podcast episodes. You'll find links out to our various social media accounts, uh, you know, such as our Facebook group. Uh, we haven't talked about our Facebook group uh, recently, but uh, the the, uh, the Stuff to Blow Your Mind discussion module, you have to uh, sign up to, to, to join it. There's like a little question you have to answer. But once you're in, you can uh, discuss these episodes with other listeners uh, and, uh, and occasionally Uh, uh, Joe and I will also uh, be in there to discuss uh, topics as well Uh, also on StuffToWillYourMind.com there's a tab uh, for our store, click on that buy some cool merchandise, it's a cool way to support the show and if you want to support us without spending a single dime just rate and review us wherever you have the power to do so
0: Big thanks, as always, to our wonderful audio producers, Alex Williams and Tari Harrison. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback about this episode or any other, or would like to suggest a topic for the future, or just to get in touch, say hi, say hi, how you found out about the show, where you listen from, uh, all that kind of stuff, you can email us at blowthemind at how stuffworks.com.